Please turn with me now to our sermon text in Luke chapter 14. Luke 14, beginning in verse 1. Now it happened, as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus, answering, spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. And he took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered them, saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? They could not answer him regarding these things. So he told a parable to those who were invited, when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by them. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, Give place to this man, and then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then he also said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed, because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And he said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many. And sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are now ready. They all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. And still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and hedges, and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Let us pray. Almighty Heavenly Father, you speak to us. And Lord, we know that sometimes there are those who do not receive your words, but rather stop their ears. We know, Lord, that there are many who make excuses of every sort, excuses that will not survive the fires of the last day. 
But Heavenly Father, we pray that, Lord, it would not be so among us this day, but rather, Lord, we would hear as those desperate to hear the truth, those with open ears, desirous to hear from their master. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we now come to Luke chapter 14. And once again, we have Jesus in proximity to the Pharisees on the Sabbath day. And we know that these are like two elements that react one with another. And once again, there is a man there with a serious illness to be healed. And I do not think it is an accident. We, we do not have proof positive, but I doubt that it's there by accident. I think once again, Jesus is being set up. Now, I will not repeat all that was said in my uh, sermon not so long ago and the very similar text in Luke 13, verses 10 to 17. But the, suffice it to say, please do not think that this, the Pharisees were actually upholding the, the real law of, of the Sabbath. Not at all. Um, they were manifesting, you know, the, the real Sabbath manifests God's own perfect character. God's Sabbath manifests the true gospel, actually. Whereas their false Sabbath manifests and embodies all that was wrong with their false teaching and their own actual rebellion against God and his ways and his gospel. Now, the larger context that brings us to this section really is that growing opposition and the murderous plans of the Pharisees as they continue to, t- to take shape. And these things continue to develop until they come to their fruition in the cross itself. The Pharisees have already decided that Jesus needs to go. And at the moment, they are trying to force him into making some sort of mistake that they can use against him. That's what's behind the words in Luke 13, uh, 31. On that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now that had no effect whatsoever. And now they're back to gathering evidence that Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of the Sabbath, is somehow a Sabbath breaker. Now to do this, they need to watch Jesus on the Sabbath. That is where our text begins in verse 1. Now it happened as he went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. Watched him closely. It's a very, very same term. It's not a very common term, but it's, it's the same one that's used later on in Luke 20, in verse 19 and 20. The chief priests and the scribes that very hour sought to lay hands on him, meaning arrest him. But they feared the people, for they knew he had spoken this parable against him. So they watched him, same term, watched him closely. And they sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize him on his words in order to deliver him to the power and authority of the governor. That is a fuller explanation of precisely what is going on here. That is exactly their intent, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and authority of the governor. So what are these self-righteous Pharisees that pride themselves on keeping the the Sabbath so very perfectly? What are they doing on the Sabbath? Are they resting? No, they're plotting. Are they worshiping God? No, they're actually plotting to kill the Son of God. And they they dare to imagine that Jesus healing a man in perfect conformity to everything that the Sabbath stood for was somehow sinning against the Sabbath. 
You wonder what these hypocrites are going to say on the day of judgment. And all the books are opened, all their false motivations are laid bare, all of their lies and all their false arguments which seem to stand up among themselves fall down completely. What they're going to say at that day, I I have no idea. But in objective terms, taking all their false motivations away, actually what they propose is a good idea. You remember what they did? They watched him closely on the Sabbath. That's a good idea. We ought to do that. We ought to watch Jesus closely, not to catch him out, but to learn from his every word and his example. We ought to do that. We ought to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, as it says in Hebrews 12. Well, that's what I propose to do this morning. We should watch Jesus. That's the title, Watching Jesus Closely on the Sabbath. What exactly did they see and hear as they did that? Well, first, Christ's integrity and compassion. Second, a parable about humility. And thirdly, some investment advice for eternity. Christ's integrity and compassion, a parable about humility, and some investment advice for eternity. This is all the, these are the things that they saw and they heard while they were watching Jesus closely. So first, Christ's integrity, courage, and compassion. In verse 3, Jesus answered, spoke to the Pharisees and lawyers, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, Jesus knows exactly what they're thinking. You know, on some other times, they ask the question. The Pharisees are, are very full with that. But Jesus knows he's being set up, knows exactly what they're thinking, and preempts them by asking the question. He's almost weary of it by this point. And asks them in this way, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, we've already spoken of their false idea of the Sabbath. I, I said that the purpose in the, of the Sabbath is rest. And that for the imparting of rest to others, sometimes it is necessary for ourselves as the body of Christ to work. We see that, of course, in what I'm doing at the moment. I'm working in order that you might receive the full spiritual rest that God would have you to have. Now, Calvin puts it in some other terms that I I want to bring up here. He says, the reply was obvious that it was a work of God. Now, the law of the Sabbath goes no farther than that men shall rest from their own works. So what he's saying is that the idea, his larger concept of the Sabbath, is that men should rest from their own works. You cease from your own works, and instead you work the works of God. For instance, particularly in worshiping the living God. Well, it all amounts to the same. Because Jesus was not there selling snake oil for his own profit. He was working the works of God, and he was giving rest to one who desperately needed it. Both of them the same thing. But, of course, they do not even attempt to answer Jesus' question. They kept silent. In fact, they are silent at the beginning and they are silent at the end of this. They have an unanswerable question and at the end they are brought to silence because of what Jesus has done and said. Well, he took him and healed him and let him go. Then he answered them, saying, Which of you, having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit, will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. 
They're silent in the beginning because they're not there to learn. They're not there to observe in order that they might learn from Him like you should be doing. You should be observing Him to learn. Learn what the real Sabbath is in order that you might keep it. Learn what the real gospel is so that you might believe it and be saved. They're not there for that. So they're silent. They're only there to catch Jesus out. And then they lack the courage and the basic integrity either to explain how it was that, that this, he, this healing was somehow contrary to the fourth commandment or ounce to admit that they were wrong. They lacked that integrity. They lacked that courage. And in so doing, you know what they do? They actually serve as a wonderful contrast, as a, a great backdrop in order to highlight Christ's perfect integrity and courage. You see? They ended up glorifying God, by the way, on the Sabbath day, precisely in that they serve as such a wonderful contrast to the Son of God. Now, let me ask you this. What was the difference in their own mind? Because the reason why they can't say a word to him is because every one of them knew that they would do precisely that and, in fact, had done it. When their ox or donkey was in trouble on the Sabbath day, they did not scruple but to rescue and to help their, their animal. And the question is, what's the difference here? What, what would be the difference in their own mind? Well, I guess it's one of two things, right? I suppose either there was some early version of PETA, of the, the sort that they think that animal welfare is so important it's worth dying for, but they think nothing at all of human life, right? They love animals just so much. Or, more likely, it's because an ox or donkey are extremely valuable property, right? Probably the most ex- expensive thing besides their house and, and land that they owned would be something like a donkey, right? It'd be like their car. In other words, they're only too willing to break their own false regulations about the Sabbath, not because they had such great compassion for their animals, in fact, compassion they obviously lacked for people, but because there was money Involved, You see, it is exposing their hypocrisy. It is exposing their own greed. And let me just say that we should always be evaluating ourselves to make sure that we're not doing something similar in our own lives. Do we have lots of scruples about our, our rules and our schedules when it's only helping people out? But do we adopt a different set of rules when, it, when not doing something is really going to cost us? Are we perhaps willing to interrupt our schedule to save our car and not willing to interrupt our schedule to help some person? Well, if so, may we repent of that kind of hypocrisy. Well, anyways, their hypocrisy and also their hard-heartedness because they didn't care about their animals and they certainly didn't care about this man. Their hypocrisy and their hard-heartedness, it makes such a contrast to Jesus' integrity and compassion. Jesus is willing to put his reputation, yes, absolutely, because those who were reputed at that time were ones who kept the Pharisees' false uh, Sabbath, whether they really believed it or not. Those were the ones who were held in high repute. And he's willing to put his reputation, even his life on on, on the line, because he knows what they're planning, to heal a man, not because it's going to help him materially, right, like they did when they, they saved and one of their animals, but out of compassion and a desire to obey God. So that's what they saw. When they looked at Jesus, they observed him closely. And what did they see? 
They saw a man unlike themselves who had integrity. And they saw a man unlike themselves who had, had courage to do the right thing. And they saw a man un, so unlike themselves who had true compassion, all on perfect display there. But that's just our first point. The second one, they heard something beyond that. They heard a parable about humility. So Jesus passes the test. He puts them all to silence yet again. Eventually, they're going to, they stop doing these things because it's so counterproductive. Every time that they, they seek to catch him out, they end up being shown up. And they eventually, way further on down the line, they eventually just stop trying. And they have to resort to other tactics. He puts them to silence yet again. But now, what does he do? He turns the tables on them. Because it's not only that they were watching Jesus closely, but you know, Jesus can play the same game. He watched them. He was observing what they are doing on their wonderful Sabbath and their perfectly pure meal. By the way, I would, I would say that uh, Matthew Henry and perhaps a few of the other older uh, commentators actually commend uh, their interpretation that when it says that Jesus uh, came there to eat bread. And they take that in a literal sort of way, meaning that that was the only thing that they had on, uh, as a meal. And we don't know that for sure, because sometimes eating bread is just a, a kind of, it includes just eating a, a regular meal. But even if so, that's the Pharisees' idea of, of the way you should keep the Sabbath. And, and I don't know if we should be commending the Pharisees if they got it wrong on every other count about the nature of the Sabbath, the purpose of the Sabbath, every way that you keep the Sabbath, then how do we expect that that one little element, if indeed that's what happened, is really, in fact, the way that you should keep it? I only say that because... I'm not convinced that having uh, the barest possible life-sustaining meal to keep people alive is really the fullest picture of the kind of Sabbath that, that the Lord intends in his amazing generosity. Anyhow, that is probably the first and last time you'll hear me uh, demure from Matthew Henry. So our point here, though, is the parable about humility. Jesus has been watching them. In verse 7, so he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places. Now, I would incidentally be curious as to know where Jesus, who is the creator and the Lord of all, ended up sitting that day. I don't know. But he certainly knew and observed where everyone else sat. And what he tells us is that they went after the best places. Now, we uh, aren't, aren't quite, quite so fastidious about these things because this gospel has been preached in our culture so much that maybe it's not a, a big deal. And in fact, actually, some of us try to avoid sitting in the, the front. Thankfully, that we've gotten better on that. But we're all too willing, in fact, to take the least places, aren't we? Um, uh, well, anyways, the point is that back then, though, they certainly had places of honor and everything was perfectly arranged. Um, that is, in fact, precisely what happens at military dinners. There is a, a head table, and there's places towards the top of that head table where the, the commander and the honored guests are, and on down, everyone is arranged precisely in accordance with their rank. Well, they, lacking the rank that they actually wore, had to arrange themselves in accordance to the rank that they imagined in their minds. And what do you know? They were all scrambling then for the highest places. Well, that is perfectly in keeping 
with the Pharisee's sort of Sabbath, which has everything to do with works and earned merit? Of course it does. That sort of idea then of being seated in accordance with how much you've earned, or at least in your own mind, well, that's perfectly in accordance with that kind of Sabbath. But it is absolutely contrary to the nature of the true Sabbath. So he tells them a parable. He says to them, verse 8, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, Give place to this man. Then you begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit down in the lowest place, so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, Friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. Now let's just keep this at the ordinary level for a moment and just just think about this. Who could argue with that logic? Even if all you cared about was what people thought of you in this world, you would still keep Jesus' advice. You would assign yourself a lower place just so that others would assign you a higher place. And that level, it works just as sort of the wisdom in in Proverbs. It reminds you that, by the way, it's not just Jesus who can see people scrambling for these, these seats. It's actually everyone else can too. Because people may well be blind about their own pride. And, we, and that's the thing about pride. It, it blinds you. You may not think that you're, you're being noticed in these ways, but everyone else is actually hypersensitive to the pride being exercised around them, and they notice. And so even if all you cared about was the genuine esteem of people around you, you would always try to assign yourself a lower place, just in order, for instance, that they would then push you, others would have pushed you to a higher one. But, of course, the ultimate purpose in Jesus' giving this goes well beyond what just happens among men. It's not just good uh, advice of how best to be well esteemed by men, is it? So rather we have then this larger principle which goes much further than that. It says, for whoever, verse 11, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Do you know what this is? This is the gospel. Go back to that parable. What, what, was the in, what was the invitation to? Because this wasn't a wedding feast that Jesus was at. But he, he picks that picture, the wedding feast picture, once again. And you know it's almost all, well, everywhere that I know of in the Gospels. It is always a reference to the kingdom of heaven. Always a picture. Always a type of the kingdom of heaven. The great wedding feast that is to come. And all you have to do is go to Revelation and see that is exactly what it is. And so, if so, then whoever exalts himself by imagining that he belongs as an honored guest at the wedding feast, because of his merit, because of how wonderful he is, he's going to be humbled. He's going to be told to leave. He's going to be told to depart into the, what what was it again? The lowest place, which is hell. But whoever is humbled, whoever humbles himself and says with the tax collector, do you remember how that goes? There's a Pharisee and a tax collector, and he's speaking to Pharisees. The Pharisee says, I thank you for what I am because I'm so great. I belong in your presence, Lord. And he's the one who says, no, he, he's not going to be there. He's, he's going to be going to hell. And on the other hand, what about the tax collector? 
He beats his breast and he says, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. He assigns himself the lowest place. And said, the Lord says to his, not that we even know that he heard it at that moment, but to his great, to our great surprise, he says, that that one was justified in the sight of God. And he's going to hear the word. Notice that he doesn't use the word friend with the other one. This time he uses the word friend. Go up higher. Those are the words, friends, that people who humble themselves in the sight of God are one day going to hear. Friend, come up here. Not go down to the lowest, but come up here. Because that, you see, that, that tells you everything about the heart of those Pharisees who kept that kind of Sabbath and had that kind of situation of, of seating themselves as they, them, as they imagined, as they scrambled for these places And imagine that they had some standing before God on their own. They're not going to hear friend come up higher. But no, it's going to, it's, it's, if if they're, and if you cannot say with a tax collector, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner, because that's who I am. You will most certainly not have a place with Jesus at his table. Well, that was the parable. As Jesus turned those tables on them and observed what they were doing and gave a little parable to them, one of great use. But thirdly, he didn't stop there. He didn't just speak to the people as a whole, because that's what he observed. He also observed his own host, who may well have invited him precisely for the purpose of setting him up in order for his destruction. But he gives him a little piece of advice, an investment advice for eternity. Verse 12, then he also said to him who invited him, his host, when you give a dinner or supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, unless they also invite you back. Be repaid. Because you see, he, he observed who was there. He'd looked around and seen, I see. So th- this is the great and the good of this community. Th- these are his friends his brothers, his relatives, his rich neighbors, those people who are honorable and those people who are going to repay him one way or another. They're either going to be indebted to him socially or they're, and, and more than likely they're going to be uh, inviting him to the very same sort of situation. And In other words, if he wants to have a high place at, at their feast, he needs to give them a high place at his feast. And Jesus says that's not the kind of, of dinner party that we should be having. Because, again, what is the purpose, indeed, of this Sabbath? It's to give rest to those who need it. It's to provide those for those who are in need. Of course, we know ultimately in spiritual terms, but also in physical terms. And so he says, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the, the maimed, the lame, the blind. By the way... Let's not again stop just at the physical level because you know that next, next time we come to another section that uses the very same terms. Do you remember? When Jesus invites the normal wedding guests and then they don't come, who does he invite? The very same list. The poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. In other words, those who don't really deserve, those who haven't earned a place at the table but rather those who are disqualified and know it. 
Well, anyways, the rationale that he gives for inviting such people in verse 14, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. You shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus is speaking these words to someone who may have invited him in the most sort of callous way. We don't know that for certain, but we know that by this time all the Pharisees, and surely the leadership of the Pharisees, were actively plotting in order to get rid of him. And he says he still holds out to him the possibility of the resurrection of the just. Now he needs to change his mind. He needs to change his heart. Fundamentally. He says, when you are like God and you are inviting those who cannot repay you, you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Because that's what matters. This man was so concerned about being repaid in kind there in this life. He wanted that social standing and he wanted to be repaid even in probably material terms as, as in receiving these return uh, uh, type of things. And let me say how sad it is sometimes you try to invite neighbors and you know that the main reason why they are rejecting your offer is precisely because they don't want to have to pay you back. Even though that's, that's not an expectation. Just in your own mind. What Jesus is saying is let's forget about all of repayment in this life because who cares? It's going to be gone. Maybe we'll die before you even get a chance to. Maybe this man was going to invite all these rich friends and he was going to not live to see their repayment in kind. What matters is in the resurrection of the just, what happens on that day? And the question is, what is going to be on the account books on that day? What's going to be on your account book? And there's some friendly investment advice for us all. Yes, of course, it's fundamentally a call for his repentance. But even at the more basic level, let's imagine that he becomes a believer. Let's imagine that all of us were believers. What are we going to be glad for on the final day? Jesus has plainly told us that not even giving a, a A cup of cold water is going to be forgotten on that day to those in need. And so, in fact, all of the things that we've done for those who had no need that we did for selfish motivations, all that burns up like hay, straw, and stubble. And even if all we're considering is forget about the glory of God, our own uh, uh, good estate as far as the rewards that are in heaven, we don't know exactly what those rewards, what shape they take. But there will certainly be some lasting recognition of those in the glory of God, through the the grace of God, who have been enabled to do good works in this world. There will be some recognition. And those who have, have done that, those who have put themselves out for the purpose of those in need, well, they'll be glad for that on that day. And... If that's the case physically, then how much more so spiritually? Well, many applications that could be drawn for all these things. But I would say, first of all, we need to submit to the humility of the gospel. Because that's really, that's, that's really the bigger picture here. Jesus looks at this Sabbath... Jesus looks at his host, and Jesus looks at these guests, and he realizes that every aspect of their thinking is contrary to the way that they should be thinking. 
Every part about it is based on works rather than on grace. And that's because every part of them was lifted up in pride. Okay? When you, think, when, I, when you think about opposition to the gospel, when you think about those who don't want to receive the gospel, I, the first thing we ought to think about is pride. When you yourself have some resistance to the gospel, perhaps you're experiencing. I want you to understand that is pride. Because people in their own situation do not want to let go of their works, of their standing. The last thing they would ever want to do is to be like that tax collector and to beat his breast and say, Lord, have mercy to me, a sinner. I bring not a single thing to you. And the only way I would ever have a place at your table, the only way I'd ever have a place at the wedding feast, is if you, of your infinite grace, were to give it as a complete gift to me and I simply to receive it. People in their pride don't want to hear that. And I would say submit to that humility of the gospel. That's what we've got to do. In humility to, to simply let go of your, your filthy good works. Because that's what they are in the sight of God. They are as filthy rags that you're clinging on to. And the Lord says just drop them. Drop them. They're as filthy as what we see in the Pharisees. Can you see how Jesus sees through? I'm sure the Pharisees thought that they were all in their glory on the Sabbath day, keeping it so perfectly. When Jesus sees right through it and sees their rebellion, sees actually they're not keeping the, the, the law of God at all. They're subverting the law of God. They're not pleasing to God in the slightest. They are an offense to him. This, they think, on their highest situation. And they're looking down at Jesus, of course, as he actually is keeping the law. Well, let us learn from them. Let us see that ugliness and let us say, no, no, no. That really is me too, by the way. Let's not look down so much on the Pharisees we don't see ourselves in them. Say, no, in our pride, that's the way we are. In humility, let's not do that. And say that the gospel is for those who are helpless. In fact, the gospel is for that list. Do you remember that list again? The poor the lame, the maimed, those who cannot help themselves at all, those who must be helped or they have nothing. That's us. We should submit to the humility of the gospel and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to salvation. Secondly, we, I, think, I think we need to learn humility in our lives. As we, as we learn of Jesus and we grow in our Christian character, it's very hard But this is among the very chief, perhaps the chief, Christian graces is humility. And what we have to understand is that our humility actually doesn't have to do with our actual worth. It has to do, unfortunately, with our tendency to overestimate our worth and to underestimate that of others. Right. So as they were scrambling, probably they tried to get there early to scramble to get the, the highest seats, just hoping that, the, that the, the host would not be so vigilant as to put people in their proper order. But they scrambled to get there because they overestimated themselves and they underestimated others. And brothers and sisters, let me say that that is precisely the situation of the human heart. And as much as we are in darkness and in pride, lifted up in pride, that's what we're always going to do. We are always going to discount the, the, the gifts, discount the, the 
the, the character of and all the rest of it, of other people, and we're going to overestimate ourselves. Now, sometimes we can be pretty good in our in false humility. I'm not speaking of that. I'm saying what is actually going in in our heart, the first thing that comes to our mind, very often is going to be an underestimation of others and an overestimation of ourselves. And if we're going to learn from Jesus, even at that basic level, then we ought to learn to assign ourselves a lower place. In fact, as it said in Philippians, that we should think of the things of others more than the things of ourselves. Because that's the heart, of course, of Christ. He came in order for the good of us, rather than that he might put himself in the highest place. Now, of course, by the way, both of those things happened in the end. And even if all we wanted to do was, in fact, to have the highest place in eternity, we would yet assign ourselves the lowest place now. Thirdly, don't forget that you are being watched. You understand that Jesus Christ was not the last person in the, in the, in the whole history of the world, that the unbelieving world around them, the sinners, watched closely. You do understand that that's actually what they do with every one of God's people. They are watching you closely because they are looking for ways. Look, please don't imagine that, that innocently, Poor people somehow encounter hypocrites in the church and therefore they're turned off from the gospel forever. I mean, I'm sure you've heard that story, haven't you? Well, I was a Christian. I was a Christian, but then I saw how many hypocrites were there. And I'm leaving and I'm never coming back. It didn't just happen to them, okay? They came and as, as their pride is offended by the gospel, they're looking for ways out. And the best way that anyone ever found to do that is to look at Christians closely until they find hypocrisy in them. And then they're justified. They can walk away. Now, they didn't find that in Christ, by the way. That was impossible. They get, that was mission impossible. Unfortunately, unfortunately, that mission is possible with us. And they can look at us closely. I want, and, and look, look, fundamentally I would say that is why we must realize that we are not Christ. And the church is not Christ. Sometimes people speak about incarnational ministry as if we ourselves are taking the place of Christ on earth. And that is not true. Okay? Our job is to point people to Christ. And fundamentally that's what we should do. And, that, and, and we must never say, look at me. We should always say, look at Christ. But even with that being said... Brothers and sisters, let's not forget that we are being watched. And the response to that, the response to the knowledge that we are being watched and watched closely is not to put on a show. And again, that's the problem with the Pharisees. It's not to put on a show. It's rather to have like Jesus, to have integrity. Right? And that's what I'm saying. That we should have integrity so that no matter who is watching us at any time, what they see might be reflective of what we are in Christ. Now that is not easy. That is not easy. That is our greatest challenge, I think. But I want us to understand that that's the right thing. It's going to take a lot of courage to have that kind of integrity, to say what you ought to say in all circumstances, to do what you ought to do in all circumstances, even when you know you're being watched and there's great pressure to do other things 
But this is my prayer, and this, I hope, is your prayer for me. Fourthly and finally, I think we need to have Christ-like conversations on the Lord's Day. This is a sort of thing that Jesus was up to on the Lord's Day as he was there at open house. Right? I, I, I hate to have these kind of, the, as the applications get closer and closer to home, I get less and less comfortable with saying these things. But, you know, he gave us a wonderful example. As we watch him, we're, trying, we're watching him, aren't we? We're watching him closely on the Lord's Day. And what does he do? Well, he makes good use of the conversation, the opportunities for conversation he has. They say something to him, and he makes the most of it. He looks around and observes what they do, and he makes the most of it. And it's all to their spiritual profit. It's all to their their profit, generally speaking. He doesn't waste the time. Now here, having said something negatively about Henry for the first and last time, let me again quote him positively. Our Lord Jesus here sets us an example of profitable, edifying discourse at our tables when we are in company with our friends. We must not only, uh, on, not only not allow any corrupt communication at our tables, such as that of the hypocritical mockers at feasts, okay? So not only preventing bad, saying bad things, but we must go beyond common harmless talk. And should take occasion from God's goodness to us at our tables to speak well of him and to learn to spiritualize common things. The lips of the righteous should feed many. Right? What are you saying? Think about that. To speak well of the Lord. We have so many things to be thankful for and we have infinite opportunities of doing so. And we should make our conversation the sort that we... Look, we have the opportunity of the Sabbath day to do that. We'd love to have these kind of conversations. But there's such a long list of business to get through. It makes it almost impossible. With the Lord's Day, here's the gift of God to us in order that we can do these things. Now's your chance. And also some very good practical advice from Henry on that point to say spiritualizing common things. What does that mean? Well, it means taking the occasion of all the ordinary things you see around you, the creation, things in the room, the the aspects of the dinner itself, all the rest of it, in order to spiritualize it. Now, some people find this to be illegitimate, but I don't think that the Puritans thought that way. In fact, Jonathan Edwards said that we need to do this so much we need to learn the language of God. The problem is we don't do it or we don't do it well. We do it falsely. We need to understand that the things, the physical things around us, are not in mis- they're not mistakes, they're not coincidences, but God created them particularly in order that they might, we might see these illustrations of the unseen and spiritual world. So the sun, created as a picture of Christ, the source of all, all life and all light, there it is, and we receive of its warmth and goodness. Or a sheep, these Rather pathetic creatures um, that uh, don't, don't have particularly good eyesight and, and certainly don't have teeth and claws and great speed and all the rest of it to save themselves from predators, but are very much reliant upon shepherds. And at least, they're not dumb though, they know enough that they can recognize the voice of the shepherd calling them by name. And you could go on and on and on. And you say, God has given us these things that we might learn. And so... I would pray that we'd be getting a little bit better at being able to do these things. Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, all we can say in these things is that, Lord, we are all too much like the Pharisees in our own hearts. Lord, it is no surprise that Jesus could make those kinds of observations. Lord, surely similar ones could be made about us in various ways. Lord, we do repent. We recoil from any similarity that we might have in any way, even secretly, uh, to these Pharisees who imagined that they fully deserved to be there. And not only to be there, but to have the highest place. Well, Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the reminder that none of us deserve to be here. And Lord, were the, the truth to be fully known about each and every one of us, uh, Lord, and we would be very cognizant of that. But Heavenly Father, we pray that as we have these things revealed to us in Scripture, and even in Christ's own very gentle way of explaining these things to us, that, Lord, truly, we would, uh, in our own minds, assign ourselves not at the head of the table as those who have achieved the very heights of spirituality and perfection, but rather, Lord, as the poor and the lame and the maimed, those who have nothing and those who have no hopes of earning anything, but rather are here on the basis of charity, on the basis of having a benefactor. And Lord, in this way, we pray that we would receive this humble gospel, this humiliating gospel, and that we would walk in humility as, as befits your own people, who, yes, indeed are beggars who have received a gift. And Lord, beyond that, we do pray that we'd make good use of the Lord's day, even in our conversation. Lord, it is hard And we know, Lord, that we are not practiced well in these things. But, Lord, even as we have this example, as we've watched Christ on the Sabbath, we pray that this example would do us some good and those around us as well. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.